Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. A'udhu billahi wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillah rahman rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wal'udwani illa ala al-zalameen. Wal'aqibatu al-muttaqeen. Allahumma salli wa sallam wa baraka al-abdika wa rasulika Muhammadin sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam tasliman kathira. A few things first and foremost so I don't forget. I want to uh, congratulate IOK and all of its volunteers, staff, everyone that put this together. Uh, I don't want it to be lost upon us how significant this moment is when three institutes come together to work together and to put forth, inshallah ta'ala, the first of many efforts in partnerships. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless IOK for <clears throat> always serving in this capacity of, of unifying, being a vehicle of unity, not just here in SoCal, but honestly around the country, alhamdulillah, and that's something that stems uh, through the mashayikh and the staff and the volunteers and the students as well. And it gives me so much hope uh, to see that spirit being imparted, inshallah ta'ala, upon everyone that comes through these doors at IOK and leaves these doors uh, with that same spirit of unity, inshallah ta'ala, and brings that to their community. So alhamdulillah, when Sheikh Nu'man Beg uh, reached out and said, what do you think of the idea of IOK, Yaqeen, and Qalam doing something together? I said, that's amazing. Sign me up. I don't know what you have in mind. But let's do it, inshallah ta'ala. And we've talked about how we can uh, unify our ranks in different ways, inshallah ta'ala, and bring projects together. But this is a phenomenal uh, step forward, uh, ta'ala. Um, I'm from Texas. Well, I'm from New Orleans. I live in Texas. I'm a Palestinian. Welcome to the Arab Israelis in the room. Uh, that's a pretty amazing analogy that you gave there. I was like, wow, you know, so... Now when you all uh, talk about women's accommodations in the masjid, you now have an analogy that you can operate with that I think beats any analogy that I've ever heard uh, for our sisters. Um, but my topic is one of Islam and the isms as a whole. Islam and all of the isms. And subhanAllah, this is something that um, I've been doing a lot of reading and research in at a personal level, first and foremost for my own enrichment. We have to keep ourselves honest are we trying to fit Islam into another worldview to give it more mobility or acceptance? Or does our religion have something unique to offer to us and to offer to the world around it? That incredible, pristine religion that gave life to the ugliest region of this world at the time in 7th century Arabia what does it have to give to 21st century Trumpistan, right? What does it mean to us here and to the world around us? Is it really just a language? And this is something, subhanAllah, that uh, one of my critiques of the rising religious left, though in, in some ways we know what the religious right does in America. Uh, the religious right has lost all credibility except with itself due to its overt hypocrisy. And so there's this new movement of the religious left that's growing and a lot of them happen to be my colleagues that would identify as being from the religious left and I would say to them that look, are we just going to put collars on our essentially politicized secular language? And is the religious left just the secular left with collars? Is that all that we are? Or is there something authentic uh, to the intervention of religion into America and into the world right now? As a Muslim, I believe that Islam shakes up the world. It shakes up the society that it operates in, that it, it poses a level of tension 
that is ultimately to the benefit of you as an individual and to the benefit of that society. Personally, what is it that gives me the greatest strength in my faith? It's the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ. I struggled with faith for years. I still struggle with faith, but I struggled with it at some point in my life to a point that I didn't even identify with it. And what makes me love this religion more than anything else is that it manifests in the person of the Prophet ﷺ. The seerah takes it out of theory. It's in practice, and it's through this one man, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, that was able to truly change the world in a way that would make it unrecognizable in regards to what it was before. It is the Prophet sallallahu You want to see the Quran in motion? It's the Prophet sallallahu If I have any doubt in my mind about what Islam is supposed to represent as an intervention into the world, I look to the person of the Messenger There is nothing about his character that I'm shy of. There is nothing about his character that doesn't make me proud. There is nothing about his character that doesn't give me something to aspire to. And there is nothing about his character that doesn't consistently and perpetually inspire me as a Muslim to rise to a better standard. I look at him وسلم, and I say, how can I be him? How do you be him? One thing about the Prophet ﷺ, never complacent. When you talk about progress, the Prophet ﷺ, for 23 years, you can see identifiable progress even in the tarbiyah of his companions through those 23 years. He was moving them and building them over those 23 years. There is no year of stagnation in the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, even in Mecca. There's not a year that something revolutionary in its nature was not legislated in the Qur'an or in the person of the Prophet ﷺ. Even in his most vulnerable moments, ﷺ, he was still challenging Meccan society and refused to become complacent in Madani society and kept on moving and moving and moving. And yes, the Sahaba were uncomfortable initially because anytime you have to change your way of life, it's going to be uncomfortable, but there is no, no span, no year in that 23 years that's a year of stagnation, where things froze. Even the year of Badr, even the year of Uhud, you see that Allah was building the religion, that there were new legislations that were coming, that were reforming the worship of the believers, that were reforming the ethical paradigms of the believers, that were moving, moving them forward in regards to character. No year in the 23 years of the Prophet Sallallahu message is their stagnation. And I want to speak to this inshallah ta'ala as sort of my way of looking at uh, this topic of Islam and the other isms. First and foremost, if you are trying to shape your Islam in accordance with the other isms, you already have a problem. If it is genuine religion and authentic, then you have to give it room to form independent of all of those other isms and reduce them to noise in the background without ignoring the real problems that they speak to. Because most of them speak to genuine problems and we believe we have genuine religion that speaks to all of those different things that those isms speak to. That does not mean that we hate everybody that identifies with those isms. That does not mean that we take an elementary look at all of them. That doesn't mean that there aren't ideas of value that come through different ways of thinking and different isms. That means that when you have genuine religion, it forms authentically and it forms out of a sense of security that it has something of substance that at no point becomes irrelevant or distant from people. 
that Islam can speak to every time and every people, and that's part of its universality. And so I want to approach this in a few ways, inshallah, or approach this first and foremost with this. People. Let's start with human beings. Most human beings are not ideological. Most people are not ideological. Most people do not interpret the world around them ideologically. They interpret it through what Sheikh Muslim mentioned, experience. Most people develop their worldviews and develop their thoughts and their approaches and their pathways in accordance with experience, not ideology. In fact, subhanAllah, I was reading something um, which, which, was, which was really interesting. In 2016, twice as many people were willing to identify as Democrat or Republican rather than conservative or liberal. I'm going to get back to that in a moment because what that means is, and I'll get back to the sentence, most people are not ideological but they are tribal. Most people are not ideological but they are tribal. So we'll get back to that in a moment. But at the first level of this, personal. Most people interpret the whole world around them disproportionately through their own personal lens. And why shouldn't they? Right? Three people that Sheikh Muslima that interacted with why should she not take those three people and cast that on the world around her when those three people represent 100% of her experiences within that domain? Of course she's going to do that. When Hajj Malik al-Shabazz, Malcolm X, rahimahullah, wrote his uh, autobiography and he talked about how the white devil doctrine was convincing to him. If you watch the movie, literally, there's that moment where he goes through and he thinks of every single white person that he had, that he had interacted with in his life and he said, Seems pretty devilish to me. That was enough for him to be bought into a doctrine. Does it mean that all white people are devils? No. But at Malcolm's time, when Malcolm went through and went through that, you know what? That makes sense. Because he went through every single person that he had interacted with, or at least those he had, who he had interacted with in a meaningful way in the 1940s and 50s and said, yep, white devil. We, we naturally are drawn to ideology through that lens of personal experience. It's who we are. It means something. And the Prophet ﷺ did not negate that. In fact, in his da'wah, the Prophet ﷺ did validate people's experiences. He acknowledged their experiences. He talked about the way that they felt. He spoke to them in accordance with that experience. You speak to people in accordance with what their intellect can grasp and the things that are familiar to them. The Prophet ﷺ, all of his amthal, his analogies, if you read through Sunnah Tirmidhi, amthal an Rasulullah ﷺ, the parables of the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ gave parables that people could relate to. To help them understand the horror of sin, to help them understand the urgency of good, to help them understand this life in comparison to the next life. He gave a lot of analogies, alayhi salatu wasalam. So those experiences meant something. It's understandable that you interpret the world through these experiences. And that's why, for example, at Yaqeen Institute, you know, when we started and we, we said we're going to combat doubt, doubt is not primarily an intellectual problem. Most people don't arrive at doubt in Islam through an intellectual crisis. The intellectual crisis is often catalyzed through an experience. And then that experience leads them down a certain path. And if they don't have the spiritual anchor or the personal anchor 
then they're going to keep on entertaining those thoughts further and further and further. So one of the things that we, st we started researching in year two, and alhamdulillah you're seeing the fruition of now, is the trauma series. The relationship of trauma and faith. Trauma with a big T, trauma with a little T, trauma in regards to your family life, trauma through the loss of a family member, trauma through, the, through, through a breakup, trauma through an abusive parent, trauma through an abusive spouse, trauma through marriage, trauma through divorce. Trauma through children, trauma through work, trauma through poverty, so many types of trauma. Trauma through uh, Islamophobia, right? The things that are happening around us. The point is, is that it's only natural that you approach ideology through that experiential lens. Why is that so important for us to understand? To the point that you naturally, psychologically, will encounter God or you'll view God or deal with God in the same way that you have dealt with authority throughout your life. If your authority figures in life were abusive, highly disciplinary, employed more negative reinforcement than positive reinforcement, or the opposite of all th three of those things, and then God gets introduced into your life as the ultimate authority, you're likely to deem him or you're likely to encounter him or experience him within that same domain, because that's your experience. So of course there's the personal. And the personal has, has something to do with whether or not these ideologies are going to appeal to us or make, make, you know, be averse to us. If I have, or we be averse to it, if, I have, if I've been an Arab-Israeli, <laughs> of course a certain ism is going to speak to me. Okay? It's only natural that that's something that's going to happen. Now I want to move on to the second thing. So it's personal. And that's, subhanAllah, by the way, the, the relationship between shahwa and hawa. Uh, shahwa and hawa both get translated as desire. Hawa, if you look at hawa throughout the Quran and the Sunnah, it usually refers to deviant thought, not deviant desire, deviant thought. Okay? Deviant thoughts. Deviant thought often is rooted in deviant desire, unrestricted desire. So when the shahwa gets too much and poisons your thought, then you're likely to go on a path of hawa. وَمَا يَنْتِقُ عَنِ الْهَوَى The Prophet ﷺ does not speak from hawa, does not speak out of desire. إِنْ هُوَ إِلَّا وَحْيٌ يُوحَى The Prophet ﷺ is always governed by revelation. Whether it's convenient or inconvenient, the Prophet ﷺ deals with revelation. It's always in accordance with revelation. لَا يُؤْمِنُ أَحَدُكُمْ حَتَّى يَكُنْ هَوَاهُ تَبَعًا لِمَا جِئْتُ بِهِ no one of you truly believes until your hawa, until your way of thinking conforms with the way of thinking of the Prophet ﷺ, conforms with the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. لا يجدوا في أنفسهم حرج مما قضيت. They feel at ease with the Prophet ﷺ's ways, with the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. At the ideological level and at the practical level, even if they're falling short, as we all are, of meeting that level of the Prophet ﷺ's practice, but it's there. And Allah mentions the opposite. أرأيت من إلهه Hawa. Do you see the one who took their God as their desirous thinking? So usually hawa is at the thinking level, shahwa is at the lust level. But if your lust is uncontrolled and becomes your guiding force and direction and purpose in life, that's likely to poison your thoughts and your intellectual trajectory as well. And then you can justify everything. You have a lust for power, then you will manipulate scripture to give you as much power as possible. And that's not always talking about a head of state. I've seen lots of that in relationships and marriages. Everybody knows their hukuk. Everybody knows their rights. Nobody knows their obligations. You tell someone, you need to be more like Muhammad. She needs to be more like Khadija. 
No one wants to talk about this stuff, right? I know my rights because if lust for power and authority is what's guiding me, then I'm not looking for response. I will read all of that, even at a personal level, into the Qur'an and the Sunnah of the Prophet So that's the personal. But the second one, I said that people are not ideological, but they are tribal. People are tribal. Division in the, in the time, even in Madani society, in the lifetime of the Prophet while he was amongst them, Rasulullah is amongst them. And what did Shaytan succeed in doing amongst them? Through the mouth of a hypocrite, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, dividing them once again back to their old tribal affiliations. Aus and Khazraj in Medina, these people who were willing to put everything behind, to greet the Prophet to meet the Prophet to to, to, you know, to lose it all, to risk it all, and take in these people from Mecca because they don't threaten their tribal identity. Take them into their homes, give them half of their stuff, all of that. But when the call of Jahiliyyah came back, the call of ignorance, Aus and Khazraj, once again, they were able to split to the point that the Prophet ﷺ walks away from his own masjid, seeing them quarrel once again. They retreat. They retreat back to their tribal identities. Even the first major fitna, the death of the Prophet ﷺ, of uh, Musaylam al-Kadhab, Musaylam of the false prophet, his followers knew he was a false prophet. But he was from Banu Hanifa. So they said the, the liar of Banu Hanifa is better than the truthful one of Quraysh. We'll take him. So people are very tribal. Tribalism both in sense of political tribes and religious tribes and things of that sort, usually appeals to insecure people. Because I find security with the group. I find security with the group. By the way, there's a healthy manifestation of that too. You know what it's called? The jama'ah. The group. And the jama'ah is not one group. <laughs> it's amazing how even a hadith which is meant to say that the, the hand of Allah is with the group, meaning the body of the Muslims. It's not one group of the Muslims that says we are jama'at so and so. The body of the Muslims. Let the identity that brings you together as a group of people be the Qur'an. The rope of Allah be the Qur'an. Not a political affiliation. Not a tribal association. The Qur'an that binds you together. And do not become divided amongst yourselves. Allah's blessing is always with the group. Allah's blessing is always, you know what? You talk about institutions in the Muslim community and you got people that try to tear down all the institutions of the Muslim community. I will take an imperfect institution, an imperfect unity over anarchy any day, over division any day that's unrestricted and that has no end in sight because shaitan preys on who? This is not my view. The Prophet said shaitan preys on the lone sheep. The sheep that's away from the flock. So we crave group. We crave identity through togetherness. And that's why we need each other. We need our masajid. Even if your masjid is imperfect. Al-masjid baytu kulli mu'min. The masjid is the home of every believer. It is a safe haven. Without it, you're spiritually homeless. We need it. We need, it. We need that place. We need that, that group to come together once again. 
and not let ourselves retreat to tribes within the Muslim community. So people are not ideological, they're tribal. They tend to cling together. You tend to look for someone else that thinks the way that you do. And then your truth and falsehood doesn't become about what's being said, it becomes about who's saying it. You know, subhanAllah, we, I, I, you know, if, you, if you think about social media today and the echo chambers and the silos, be honest, those of you that are on social media quite a bit. If you remove the names of all things that are said on social media, would you still retweet the same things that you retweet and share the same things that you share and bash the same people that you do and celebrate the same people that you do? Probably not. So truth and falsehood become lost in who's speaking, not what's being spoken. People are not ideological. They're personal and they're tribal. There's something called, by the way, I read a book on it. I'm not a psychiatrist. Please, all of the psychiatrists in here, but somehow I'm fascinated by psychiatry. One of my greatest regrets in life is not doing a degree in psychiatry or doing a degree in film. That's another story. Uh, <laughs> uh, motivated cognition. If you Google motivated cognition, the same way Sheikh Muslim Googled feminism and got feminazism. I thought that was hilarious. I saw everyone's eyes go, wait, what? If you Google motivated cognition, motivated reasoning, most people are familiar with the term confirmation bias, right? You look into the Qur'an, you look into the Sunnah, you try to find what's there and you get it. Let me find it and then, yes, this is, this is what I've been saying the whole time. Allah says it too. The Prophet said it too, see? And then assign all of the language to it. Motivated cognition speaks to the general way in which, in which we approach these things, about the personal way in which we approach text and approach ideology, approach thoughts. It is emotional reasoning, and when you emotionally reason, you are inherently, objectively illogical. Of course you're not going to be logical, because you're going to use all sorts of dodgy reasoning and dishonest uh, thought to fit things into your perfect worldview. And so it doesn't become about what type of feminism, if any, is compatible with Islam or any type of ism. It becomes what I want to be compatible with Islam and my worldview for the sake of my trajectory. Okay, so it's emotional reasoning. It becomes dodgy. So there are three things that I want to mention, inshallah ta'ala, in conclusion. I want you to remember these three. Islam is CCC, not CC. He's not doing too well right now. Um, inshallah, he does worse. Islam is CCC, three C's. And I want you to remember these things. Number one, current. Islam is current. There are two problems that I see typically when, when Islam is spoken about in conversation with these ideologies or conversations with our times. Number one, the only time we bring Islam into it is to say what is not compatible with Islam. As if to suggest Islam has nothing to offer. So amongst uh, practicing, and I, I hate the word conservative because it means so many things, but let's just say Orthodox, mainstream, masjid going, whatever it is, connected, conservative. Usually the word activism gives you like this allergic reaction. And the only thing you think of is what's haram about activism? Is that all Islam has to say about the world around us? And the issues around us is what's wrong with it? What's wrong with activism? Really? So there's no authentic way to engage the slate of issues? That's what the Prophet brought? Nothing? except for a creed, a doctrine, that's it. 
So what's haram, if, if the first thing that comes to your mind is what's haram about it, that's very indicative of your view of Islam, not your view of the world. Islam has so much. The Prophet Sallallahu sirah is rich. There, there is th- stuff to draw from there. So Islam is current. And by the way, the greatest threat to religion is not refutation. The greatest threat to religion is stagnation. When people don't think that there's a role for it that, to even be discussed in the realm of ideas, when the ideas are not even worth being refuted anymore, when people don't feel like it speaks to their lives anymore, it's something my parents used to do, my grandparents used to do, my great-grandparents used to do, right? The Prophet said there would come a time where people would say, Allah, Allah. They don't know why they're saying Allah. It lacks meaning. It's just a language at that point. Why are they saying La ilaha Allah? Well, my dad used to say it. You find people, subhanAllah, I've been to, to areas in North America and South America, and you find people that don't eat pork. Why don't you eat pork? Well, my parents were Muslim, and they just taught us not to eat pork. That's, that's it. Islam is current. It's not stagnant. Just as there was no year of stagnation in 23 years of the life of the Prophet there is no stagnation in Islam until the end of times. It's always current. It always has something to say about the world around us. It always speaks to us. The second C, Islam is consistent. Genuine religion has to be able to survive temporary trends. One of the things, I, I teach a course uh, on maqasid at SMU. We just don't call it maqasid at Southern Methodist University. We call it the principles and objectives of Islamic law. And we were just studying uh, last week uh, the way that, that rhetoric, that discourse in a colonized Muslim world started to address Islamic ethics. Basically, the goal was to reshape terminology within Islam to fit colonial sensibilities to put Islam on par with the rest of the world to say that Islam was not regressive. You're already starting from a faulty foundation because your goal is to get over an insecurity. A lot of times, many uh, ways of thinking also married Islam to a temporary secular conclusion. So you guys remember the Quran and science books? Science was at a certain point suggested that we have reached a scientific conclusion. And then we said, the Quran said this too. And then science moved on and we said, ah. about that. Actually, no, the Qur'an wasn't talking about that. It was talking about, we, we go back to the original tafsir, right? Genuine religion has to, be will, has to be able to survive temporary trends, be they societal, scientific, whatever they may be. That's the point. Permanent, consistent principles. What are the principles of Islam that are just as true now in the 21st century in the United States of America as they were in the time of the Prophet ﷺ in Mecca? So consistent, meaning it is authentic and it has continuity, continues, it continues. So I said it's two so far, current, consistent. The third one is compassionate. Islam is compassionate. You do not, you do not scream people, yell at people, insult people into believing like yourself. That does not happen. The Prophet said, Inna minkum There are those amongst you that deflate people. They run people away from the truth. Even if they're just reciting the Quran, they run people away from the truth. The Prophet was told, Law kunta al-qalb. If you were harsh, hard-hearted, they would have left you, even though he's the messenger of Allah. He has wahi coming down to him, revelation coming down to him. But if you're not presenting it in any way that's compassionate, 
People will flee from you. No one's going to listen to you. No one is going to change anything. That's part of the religion. Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who was not some liberal sellout. Ali ibn Abi Talib was not a white knight imam or whatever they've got now going on. Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu said, speak to people and what they can understand. Do you want them to leave the religion? Do you want them to deny Allah? And you kathab Allah? Is that what you want? You want them to say, wow, that's the religion? I hate it. It sucks. It's disgusting. That's what you want people to come away with? You want people to be shouted into those chambers? Who are you fighting? You fighting ideologies or are you fighting people that are infected by ideologies? Where's that going to come from? Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, rahimahullah, his son said to him, Ya Abi, what about this bid'ah and this innovation? Are you going to get people on this and you're letting people do this? And Umar ibn Abdul Aziz was a radical reformer. He was doing things that no one had thought to do. In two years, he brought the ummah to a very, very different place. And he said about his son, Rahimahullah Abdul Malik, he said, Kana yu'inuni fillah. He used to support me in doing good for Allah. But his son was like, How are you going to sleep with this and this and this and that? And he said to his son, He said, Oh, my son, you want me to try to bring them on the religion all at one time so that they can leave it all at one time? If I try to force it all on them at one time, then they're just going to ditch it all at one time. Hikmah. Hikmah. Wisdom. The Prophet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions to call to the way of Allah bil-hikmah wal-maw'id al-hasana with wisdom and beautiful preaching. Ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhu said, wisdom speaks to the timing of delivery. Subhanallah. The timing of delivery. That's why hikmah is synonymous in Islam with silence. Luqman al-Hakim, his wisdom was basically that he was silent and when he had to speak, he said some really wise stuff. So hikmah is hakama. it's literally the horse's reins. If you've got a wild horse, it's gonna throw you off of it and trample a bunch of other people over too. Hikmah speaks to the horse's reins, hakama. You know how to hold it, it speaks to the proportion, the timing of which you say things, you know you're gathering what's appropriate, how to get people, because the goal is to get people moving. Not to move them away. So hikmah and maw'id al-hasana speaks to the tone that you use when you speak. The timing and the tone Allah mentions as two essential elements of da'wah. Ilm without hikmah is a destructive wild horse. And usually it's not ilm in the first place. And that's even worse when it's the appearance of knowledge, the appearance of ilm. So yes, compassion always has to be a part of our da'wah. It always has to be a part of the tone. If you're telling people to change their worldview, if you're trying to pull someone out of something that they're deeply convicted in, you've got to use a tone that's going to remove the ego so that they can hear you. They won't be able to hear you from the ego part of things. That's why Allah gave Fir'aun a chance, told Musa Islam to speak words of gentleness. Fir'aun is a proud man. Speak the truth. Don't butter up the truth. Speak the truth. People would ask, well, what's the, you know, at what point are we watering down Islam? At what point are we watering it down to where it's not authentic anymore? It's very simple when it's ambiguous, when people don't know what you're saying anymore. But the truth can be pristine and authentic and unambiguous. And then the compassion that you use with that tone can allow it to penetrate through those layers of ego that often stop people from hearing you. And they'll go, wow. The very first way the Prophet ﷺ addressed his ummah was, if I was to tell you 
that there was an army that was to attack you. I see an army coming to attack you. Meaning, you know, Azizun alayhi ma'anitum, harisun alaykum. You know how much I love you. You know I'm not doing this because I want to shame you. You know I don't want to tear families apart. The Prophet knows what the rhetoric's going to be that you're trying to tear families apart. You know that. I'm speaking to you. So I end with this hadith. So I said, current, consistent, compassionate. Current, consistent, compassionate. When the Prophet mentioned in Sahih al-Bukhari this narration of the ship, an upper deck and a lower deck of that ship. And the Prophet said, giving the example of his ummah, some people, they draw lots. Some people get to the top of the ship, other people get on the bottom. So one on the upper deck, one group on the upper deck, one group on the lower deck. The group on the lower deck needs water, but the group on the upper deck is pretty snobby. So it's not that they're saying no, it's not that they're knocking on the door and they're not opening the door and giving them water, it's that they're really annoyed by them. Like, oh God, you people again, here, take some water, go. They're degrading, right? Allah mentions that sometimes sadaqa, that to use a good word, is better than a sadaqa, is better than a charity if you give someone money, tasba'uha adha, and you follow it up with something to harm them. You give charity in a way that destroys a person's self-esteem. They don't want your money. They wish they never asked you for money. They wish you never gave them anything. Because you degraded them and beat them up mentally and emotionally when you gave it to them. You broke their self-esteem. So these people on the lower deck, they're asking questions. They're looking for guidance because water is guidance. And the people on the upper deck are annoyed, self-righteous. Don't got time for you. What's wrong with you people down there? So the people on the lower deck say, you know what, forget them. And they start to drill holes in the ship. Then, suddenly, the people on the upper deck are concerned. Now you're worried. Now you're scared. You know why? Because your ship is sinking. That's why you're scared. Your community is exposing deep divides that are hindering it. It's coming to your home. You're being challenged. You're... Now the community's falling apart. Your ship is sinking now. And then suddenly, mashallah, people on the upper deck say, are you, what are you guys doing? And what's their response? Ta'adaytum bina. You guys were annoyed by us. And we had to get water from somewhere. Liken this to ideology. When illegitimate ideologies speak to legitimate grievances, don't scream at the illegitimate ideology. Ask yourself what you have done to speak to the legitimate grievance. And if you think your religion doesn't have anything to say about the legitimate grievance, we're not talking about the same prophet. <laughs> we're not talking about the same message. Our religion has ethics, has currency, has relevance, has authenticity, has consistency. People are more hungry and thirsty for this deen now than they've ever been before. People are more hungry and thirsty for it. I'm in Texas. Alhamdulillah, in four months in our masjid, we've had someone take shahada an average of every week. People are thirsty for this religion. People are more, are looking for guidance, are looking for consistency, are looking for togetherness. But what did the Prophet say if the youth are not... I already said what the Prophet said. There's an African uh, proverb that says that if the youth are not initiated into the village, they will burn it down to feel its warmth. So our own youth now are setting our masajid on fire sometimes. We have to ask ourselves, well, yes, while we're refuting, while we're talking about Islam and the ideology, what are we doing to speak to 
the legitimate grievances and the way that people feel. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to manifest this deen in a way that's authentic. May Allah forgive us if we deviate from it or preach it in deviation. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide us to live it in a way that would get us to Jannah and get people to it and ultimately to Jannah as well and to preach it in a way that is as true to the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ with the tone and the beautiful character of the Prophet ﷺ as possible. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow it to be our safina, our saving ship, like the safina of Nuh alayhi salam. When we see so many people drowning around us, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not let us drown in our delusions, in our deviations, in our comfortable truths, in anything but that which He has given to us for our ultimate salvation. Allahumma ameen. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.